Here's your almanac for tilling the cultural soil with the conversations we plan with humor, faith, and wisdom. Here's your hosts, Dr. Peter Kapsner, Carmen LeBurge, and I'm Nat. Welcome to The Till. Carmen, Nat, great to see you guys here again for another episode of The Till. Hey, Peter. Okay, I got to step in here for a moment. This is almost an untimely release of an episode. We don't like to record ahead of time, but sometimes we have to. Unfortunately, this is one of those that we recorded ahead of time. So a lot of the information is well outdated as far as COVID-19 goes. But we need some grace here in that the knowledge that you have listening now is not the knowledge that we had later. And I just finished disinfecting all our sound equipment to limit the exposure that this show at least impacts uh, people. Without any further addendums to the show, this is The Till. As we know, we sometimes start with a question uh, for you, Nat. You know, you're in the, I suppose you're not even the millennial generation, are you? You're sort of some other generation, X, Y, Z, double A kind of thing. I think it's Z. Is there double A now? Well, I don't know. There must be at this point because you're starting to actually age out of what's relevant to these days, it seems like. So it's, you know, it, you're 20 years old is when you're relevant. And so Carmen and I being not relevant uh, anywhere near that criteria, we're wondering sort of what's nagging you because I'm guessing you have questions about life, about faith, church, family relationships, all that kind of stuff that are fundamentally different than maybe what we're uh, asking questions about. So what, what's nagging Nat today? Well, okay. Let's talk about tattoos. Tattoos. Yeah. Wow. wow. Okay. I feel like we've not tilled this on the till yet, so <laughs> it's worth a shot. And I feel like there's something to unpack here. You know. So, yeah. Specifically, I mean, do well, you have a tattoo now? I don't actually. And honestly, I don't know that I have anything like against them, but I don't know that I could make the permanent decision. Like, I think I'd just get weighed down with the like, is this what I want for the rest of my life? Sort of deal. So, so let's say Carmen and I pick you up at your flat or whatever, and we take you out uh, to downtown Minneapolis to a tattoo parlor. Yeah. You don't think you'd press go at that point, I'm, or what would you I'm do? Not, I'm not on that trip. <laughs> Wait, that's, okay. So already Carmen is revealing a bit of her uh, her beliefs about tattoos. But let's say I pick you up, Nat, and yeah, we go down, okay. and I decide we're doing some sort of initiation process that involves <laughs> a tattoo, and you have to decide on the spot. Are, are you getting the tattoo or not? If I have to sit on the spot there, no. You don't. Okay. Good, so, so good, good man. Good man. Don't right. let Peter talk you into something <laughs> that is going to be permanent. Okay, Carmen. So you're saying no to tattoos. Is that what I'm hearing? Give us uh, your, your thoughts on this. Okay. I'm not saying no to people who have tattoos. So let's just be clear about that. Right. So it's not a judgment about people who have tattoos. This is a recognition and acknowledgement that um, they get really ugly over time. And to Nat's point, they're permanent in a way that is um, disturbing. Hmm. Wow. So disturbingly permanent. Oh, yeah. So, so Carmen, is this more of an aesthetic issue or a theological or biblical issue for you then at this point? Yeah, no, definitely aesthetic. Definitely aesthetic. So do you have any trouble? Like if somebody decided, you know what, I don't care about the aesthetics of it for my next 60 years. I know that my tricep is going to become baggy over time and saggy and, and, and we're going to lose perspective on the tattoo. Like you, you think still it would be okay to do it from a biblical standpoint. Okay. So my, it's going to give you my youth ministry answer to the question because he was like, <laughs> you know, like, so he's pierced for our transgressions. There's this, you know, when we have conversations about piercings, I mean, there are people who are doing these things as a, as a statement. Um, 
And so I'm I'm probably not going to be a person who points to piercings and points to tattoos and is like, that's clearly of the devil. Now, do I think that if you regard your body as a temple of the Holy Spirit, then you're going to be really hard pressed to come up with a legitimate reason why you're going to um, pierce or mar or tattoo um, permanently the uh, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Like you're like tagging it with graffiti. That's what, I mean, if I were going to have this conversation with a young Christian person who's considering getting a tattoo, I would be like, look, your temple does not need to be tagged with graffiti. Yeah. I Okay. So I remember the first time that I started seeing tattoos in earnest and just the, 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 the mass possibility of the body art. It was when I was working in the NBA and I would go into the locker rooms and the NBA players would be, you know, done with their game and they'd be sort of out of the showers, uh, maybe, you know, toweling off all of that and, and their bodies from head to toe. I mean, literally from neck down to, to ankle covered with tattoos. And I, that's when I started asking the question about what do I think about the tattoo? And I, you know, I don't know what to do that. I often think that if I was in Scotland somewhere, you guys know how much I love Scotland, that I would have absolutely no trouble getting some sort of Scottish emblem or symbol tattooed on, and that would be related to my love for Scotland. But then I think biblically about this, and uh, honestly, I'm a bit mixed because the language from the Bible, the only verse that we have, obviously, is from Leviticus, Mm -hmm. where it talks about thou shall not get tattoos or however that passage goes. And there's a lot of reason to suggest that Leviticus was filled with temporary restrictions for the people of Israel, that they weren't to blend in or look like the civilizations around them because they needed to reestablish a sense of identity coming out of slavery, coming out of Egypt. They didn't remember who they were and whose they were. And so they needed to be set apart uh, from the rest of society so they could rebuild their community. And it was pretty common to ink up your body related to maybe worshiping other gods at that time. So thus the prohibition. Now, the problem with that is that uh, I sometimes teach on sexuality in a passage from Leviticus comes up about don't lie with another male. A man shouldn't lie with a man. That's an abomination to the Lord. I don't think at the same time that that is a cultural restriction. That is obviously something that is for all time in God's kingdom. It wasn't just for the Leviticus people. And and it's pretty clear, actually, because Leviticus doesn't function all the same way throughout the whole book, meaning that some sections seem to be clearly related to the people of Israel, and some sections clearly seem to be related to God's kingdom in general. And, this, and the material about homosexuality falls into a section where the language really does seem to be universal. This is going to be for all time. These are things that are never to be part of your community. I wish I could say that don't get a tattoo fell into the sections of Leviticus that were more seen as cultural restrictions that were temporary, but it doesn't. It falls into the same categories in Leviticus that are the universal prohibitions, the same things about homosexuality, about loving your neighbor as yourself, some of these universal statements, that's where that prohibition falls. And so I have a hard time not necessarily understanding why it would be a a permanent prohibition other than maybe, Carmen, what you said about body being a temple of Holy Spirit. It it does seem to fall into that passage. And so I have a hard time wanting to get a tattoo because I do think there's something about it that is more universal than cultural. Interesting. Okay. So, but I haven't, you know, yeah, now, yeah, give us your thoughts here, Nat, because I, I feel like I haven't done that full work. It's just where right. my current work is related to it. Well, I guess that's exactly what I was looking for, because that's the, the parts where I haven't studied and I, I wouldn't know. So, 
Uh, but let me just throw out one example then. So, like, what about you ever see like the wedding tattooed rings? Like, people get like a ring tattooed. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, that's something permanent that I, I don't know. I'm just like, how do you I'm kind of supportive of that. <laughs> see, right? I'm like kind like of supportive of these things too. Right. Now, <laughs> and I'm always, I mean, my buddy got a tattoo of some important passage of scripture. So now I'm sitting here thinking, He's dedicating his life to Jesus and is represented in a physical mark on his skin. But how do I understand Leviticus? And now I don't know what to do with this whole thing. So, all right, I feel differently about the passage of scripture tattooed on the person versus the using a tattoo as a wedding band. Um, I mean, there is some some permanence related to the um, what would I, what would I call the ring, the symbol of the ring, the symbol of the wedding ring or the ring at the wedding. Um, and literally you can't take a tattooed ring off. So, um, there's no going back. I I do see, I like, I like the permanence of that, Mm -hmm. uh, image, uh, in terms of a covenantal exchange, you know, as a part of, uh, of a wedding ceremony. I like that the tattooing scriptures on the body, you know, that's sort of, uh, that's a branding image to me. And you need to be wearing the brand of Jesus all the time in every way um, so that your entire life becomes a living demonstration of the gospel. If you need scripture branded on your body, there's another, there's some kind of different problem with your living testimony. (laughs) Yeah, that's very, all right. So can we, can we suggest that we probably have some interesting pathways down which to walk on this topic and maybe Nat, uh, now we can turn what's nagging Nat into a till episode for another time and really try to mine this out. I'll, I'll do some biblical work on it. I like, I like Carmen's you know, ideas. Keep, about, okay, we keep promising people this, and we never actually go back and do it. I know, but this so, is great. I feel we'll, like we'll, we'll have bonus streaming content sometime. We'll do a live move version on of the, the play. We do have some topics that were not so much off the top of our head that were a little bit more top of the mind, perhaps this week, including obviously the ongoing expansion of the coronavirus uh, to sort of a global, whether you want to call it an epidemic or a pandemic. I don't know. I don't really care what the language is. All we know is it's pretty pervasive around the world. And I'll ask you this first, Carmen, did it at least cross your mind at any point in time that this kind of pandemic could be representative of an end times plague? Because that's starting to come out in some of the, like a place like the Christian Post is starting to publish different newspaper articles that are saying, hey, are people thinking in terms of end times? Has this even crossed your mind about that? Yes, absolutely. Has certainly crossed my mind. Um, The conversation about the end times, I, I would say that in addition to the coronavirus, you know, I, I think that if people aren't paying attention to malaria, if they're not paying attention to AIDS, if they're not paying attention to tuberculosis, people are dying globally in massive numbers related to these diseases. Uh, I mean, a, a child dies like something like every two minutes of a preventable yeah. disease. Yeah. So. So, yes, do I think that we have plagues among us now? Yes. The flu every year is a kind of a plague. Um, but malaria and tuberculosis and AIDS are ongoing plagues that, that literally plague people globally that we don't even pay attention to much anymore. Um, there are cholera outbreaks from time to time. Yemen is currently in the midst of a cholera outbreak. It may kill a third of the population. That is a pl- that's a plague level kind of event. We're not going to see those kinds of numbers in terms of death associated with the coronavirus we or, or COVID-19. 
Certainly, we may see a massive number of people contract COVID-19, but here in the United States, we're not going to see a whole lot of people die of it. I mean, you might be inconvenienced. Some big concert that you were planning to attend might get canceled. Um, There might be an economic impact. But in terms of a death plague, uh, you know, and actually here in the United States of America, it's not it's not going to result in that kind of a thing. But it's a good opportunity to talk about the end times. It's a good opportunity to talk about, you know, the realities of, of plagues and pestilence, which the locust, uh, the locust pestilence in Eastern Africa right now um, is worthy of conversation as well. Yeah, there are t- there are some end times evidences going on. Yeah, I, th- I think that would be the place to talk about it from here is sort of what is that impulse that we tend to have that when we have these global events or when we have what you've just outlined so well in terms of some of the global uh, epidemics that maybe are localized at this time, but can become, again, more globalized in today's really sort of tight knit world in which we live, it does, the passage that was being referenced uh, in this article that we are reading from the Christian Post that was titled, Is the Coronavirus an End-Time Biblical Plague? is a passage from Revelation 6, verses 7 and 8, when the fourth seal is opened and a living creature says, come and see, there is a pale horse. The name of him who sat on it was Death and Hades. This fourth horseman has often been associated with plague, with illness and violent death by means of disease. And so I'm curious, you did mention, Carmen, that it crossed your mind. And Nat, did it cross your mind when you hear anything about a plague like this that so you start thinking end time sort of stuff? No, not at all. We've gone it through didn't. so many random, or well, not random, I don't know, I just lived, all sorts of diseases that have spread around the world in the last millennia. And none well, of them and have think, ended the world. Well, right. And I mean, right, the bubon, bubonic plague of Europe was much more severe in terms yeah. of just the numbers of population that it wiped out. But but what's the impulse? I mean, Carmen, why would it cross some people's minds? It did cross my mind. Like, wh- why do we go to that place related to the end times when we see things like this? Every generation, um, I think, is if we're paying attention, you know, we've recognized that Jesus has said, um, you know, when when the, those times are when those times begin to draw near, like these are the things you can expect to happen and you should look up like you should be paying attention. You should. Uh, so I, I do think that it makes us look up and it makes other people look up. It gives us an opportunity as Christians to um, even have the conversation about uh about the apocalypse, about the end time, not as a movie, not as something that Hollywood made up, but as a real prophecy that God has hath foretold. Um, and like every other prophecy of scripture, it is going to be fulfilled. Will it be fulfilled in our day and age? Um, if you've read the book of Revelation, you do not want to be the people who are living when it happens. You don't. Yeah. I mean, if you've read the book of Revelation, you don't want to be the generation that's alive when it happens. However, there is going to be a generation of Christians who's alive when it happens, um, who are going to have to live through what is you know, called in what, what Jesus calls and what the book of Revelation calls um, the tribulation. And so, um, you know, I think when guys like Bill Gates say, hey, this looks to me like a one, once in a century pathogen, um, that probably makes people look up in a different way than when. You know, Dr. Albert Moeller notes that this is, uh, you know, people are referring to Revelation 6, right? I mean, different different people are going to point to different authorities or influencers mm-hmm. and say, hey, this person is saying these kinds of things. Would love, I would love, I would love your response um, or reaction to um, this pastor who says that tithe-paying Christians, people who pay their tithe are going to be protected from the coronavirus by Psalm 91. How do you feel about that? What? Yeah. 
<laughs> also, also uh, being reported. So here we go. Tithe-paying, Bible-believing, Holy Spirit-filled Christians have a Psalm 91, quote, protection policy against COVID-19. Just letting you know, this is what's being preached by a popular multi-campus pastor in New Zealand. He preaches to something like 40,000 people. And And he's telling them... Psalm 91? What is the reference point here? I have not heard of this guy. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness. So apparently you're also going to be safe from the locusts. Nor the plague that destroys at midday. Reading from Psalm 91, he continued... We need not fear. There's a lot of hysteria that has been engendered by certain elements about this pandemic. Um, Then he goes on to basically say um, uh, that although the prince of the power of the air has control of the atmospheres, unless you are a blood-bought, born-again, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing, Holy Ghost-filled, tithe-paying believer, um, because you're going to be the one that's going to be able to walk through atmospheres and literally have the protection of Psalm 91. Psalm 91 is your protection policy. That's what he said. Wow. Well, I mean, the obvious, go. right? Yeah, the, the, the tithe paying bit sort of reveals the obvious to me at that point. I mean, this is yet another uh, opportunistic, uh, this, this sort of just reeks of uh, 15th century Catholicism where they were deciding, hey, if your loved ones are in purgatory, here's an opportunity for you to get them out of purgatory. And that's just pay a bunch of money to the church and they'll get out. So th- this seems like it's in a long line of tithing theology that's for the good of the institution where you're sort of leveraging uh, uh, modern day fear uh, on something like that. But yeah, I don't know what the passage in Psalm 91 means exactly in its context. I mean, clearly when we take these passages and say, okay, if we just do X, then God will always do Y. But uh, we have a, we have to at least hold that in stark contrast to Jesus saying, don't be surprised when trouble hits you in this world. Uh, The world is filled with travail and, but take care of overcome the world. I mean, when you think about his first followers, they all died of martyrdom, uh, every single one of them at that point. So now it wasn't a plague that killed them, but maybe they just weren't praying and tithing in the right way that it, otherwise they would have avoided the, <laughs> avoided the martyrdom uh, at that time. I mean, now what's your quick response that I had not heard this preacher in New Zealand saying that. And, and how, by the way, isn't there only like 30 people in New Zealand? How do you have a I have so <laughs> I have sure. so many surprises for you in this episode. I can just hardly wait to oh trot them gosh. out. I mean, that was amazing. But that's the first thing that I'm troubled by is there's only 30 people in New Zealand. So I don't know how you have a multi-campus <laughs> streaming thing. But Nat, what, quick response to this. Their giving must have gone through the roof. If we're yeah. buying out like face masks and stuff, people got to be tithing like nothing else. <laughs> well, it's an interesting like, approach, right? I mean, like, yeah, so I do think that it's a poor witness. Let's start. I mean, I would certainly yeah. say to to the watching world that is a poor witness that is not true the bible is not um you know it, it's not like you you put your money in here and you get your promise out here that's not how this works god is not transactional in this way uh, you know and so it, i also think that there's an opportunity for christians in relationship to the way everyone is isolating and um and treating other people sort of as pariah right now this is an opportunity actually for the church to lean in and recognize that, you know, if uh, if I do contract the coronavirus because I was out there serving the the least of these, my neighbors who are in need, then I do know where I'm going when I die. I do know what is on the other side of death and a lot of other people don't. And so there is an opportunity in this season to be people who are not panicked, um, but who do press into the problem in a way 
that acknowledges that we're already dead and we live for a risen savior with whom we're going to spend eternity. Yeah. And, and I think, and here's the trouble too, with, uh, and just in light of what you just said, Carmen, with all of these health prosperity kinds of gospels that make promises that say, if you just pray in the right way, or you just read through the Psalms, or in this case, if you just tithe, you're going to be spared from the plague, or you're going to be healed from the cancer, or you're going to be protected as you drive or whatever it all is. At the end of the day, the same end awaits us all. I mean, we're all going to die, even if you're temporarily spared, right? And so when we have this idea that God's favor is defined by whether or not you're able to live life and continue to live life in this world or not, at the same time, there isn't a person who, and I believe that God does heal, and I believe that God does spare, but that healing and that sparing is still always temporary and transient. If you get healed at the age of 40 from maybe a terrible cancer, you are going to die at the age of 90 or whatever it is from something else. It's going gonna, it's gonna to end at some point. So how do we understand why God heals? And how do we understand why God spares life? It isn't just simply so that we can continue to enjoy life. There's got to be a greater purpose for it besides that. There's got to there's be a reason for the sparing. And I think it probably has to do with somewhere along the lines of the Isaiah-Hezekiah interchange where... Hezekiah is basically told the king of Israel to get his affairs in order. Uh, His life is ending. And he says to Isaiah, well, hang on just a minute. I've been a faithful king. I can continue to faithfully rule over Israel. And Isaiah comes back and says, God has granted you more time. Now, I I don't want to make that a dogmatic for anything related to life other than to say that if our entire life is not our own, if it's been bought with a price, then any time that you're spared, or any time that you're healed or along those lines, you're still continuing the same journey that you were doing before all of that, which is to shine God's light and witness in this world. You're just given more time to do that. So playing on people's fears that, oh gosh, you know, if you just do X, you're going to be able to live a happy life for the next 50 years of your life and avoid the coronavirus. I think that does a disservice as to what God is up to when he heals and when he spares. Okay. So I know that, um, we're going to make a transition to another conversation. So can I, uh, in a minute, so can I use one minute to talk about the other plague that's happening right now? And that would be the locust swarms in Eastern Africa. Yes. For sure. So this is like really serious and we do need to pray for people in Eastern Africa, but I, I have a little hats off to the Chinese today. They are literally hatching a plan to deal with the locust swarms. Do you know what this is? Have you already heard of this? I do not know. Surprise number two. Okay. They are, ha- I mean like, and, and when I say they're hatching a plan, it's uh. It's it's not a ridiculous it's not a ridiculous plan it's a ridiculous plan. They are hatching a hundred thousand ducks that they are going to deploy. <laughs> You're kidding. They are going to deploy them to the front lines to eat the locusts. Apparently, they can eat hundreds of locusts a day. Uh, this is the best what plan ever. The, but what's going to eat the ducks? I mean, when the ducks are well, done, hello. Are eventually, the, eventually the people are going to eat the ducks. I mean, right? I mean, yeah. well, actually, delicious. so this is apparently the concern. This is a this is a wonderful. Like, there's a couple of concerns. However, the Chinese are not necessarily known for sending the most healthy of products, and so the the whether or not they're ever going to let the ducks cross the border is a is an issue. But should the ducks actually make it over there um, for this deployment, the other big concern is ducks rely on water. Ooh. And there's not a lot of water in this region of the world. So anyway, there you go. So there's a so I, I, but I bring it up because I do believe we're going to hear about these hundred thousand Chinese duck hatchlings who are <laughs> literally going to eat the locust swarms that are currently invading eastern Africa. That is the best out of the box response to locusts. Yeah.
All right, welcome back to The Till. So first uh, part of the segment, we ended with some Chinese ducks and grasshoppers. Carmen, it's very tough to figure out how to transition into the next topic. Other than that, I do think it's relevant, some of what we talked about in the church in the first segment about the way church uh, presents what life in the kingdom is about. And clearly this New Zealand pastor was presenting more of a transactional kind of kingdom life with God, where if we just give to the church or we do all the right things and believe in the right ways, we're going to be spared and blessed. But there's another thing that I thought was pretty interesting that came out here recently, and it was Anne Graham Lotz uh, gave a talk that was addressing, in her mind, the fall of morality within the Christian church, too. And so there obviously are a number of issues that can happen within the institutional church. And in this particular case, Anne Graham Lotz was saying that Christians moving forward need to lean on the Holy Spirit's power in order to stop this moral and spiritual freefall that we see perhaps in the Catholic Church as best represented by the horrors of the sexual abuse scandal. Of course, we see it in the Protestant Church where we see uh, greed and, uh, and sexual immorality come to the table quite often as well. So what's your first sort of reaction when you see her headline talk that we need to lean more into the Holy Spirit in terms of dealing with the moral and spiritual freefall of the day? I feel like that's never a wrong answer. Like, oh, you can always like at any point in any part of our history, we can always just throw that in as a tagline and you're going to be right or you're not going to be wrong. (laughs) Like we probably always need to move forward in that. Yeah, I never think that leaning into the Holy Spirit is a bad idea. Um, I think that more often than not, the Holy Spirit is um, ignored, um, relegated to the corner, told to behave himself. Like not to get in the way of what we're doing, right? Don't don't be disruptive. I, I feel like uh, culturally, the Holy Spirit is not only the least understood member of the Trinity, Trinity, but um, but the least appreciated, yeah. um, and and definitely muzzled often, or you know leashed or whatever. So uh, part of what Anne Graham Lotz is is pointing to, I believe, is our tendency. Um, in American Christianity to come up with a system and systems that are reasonable and we're creating places for people to be well-behaved as if being well-behaved is holiness, as if, as if fitting into some structure and mold is, it can be equated to godliness. And so, so part of this is a misunderstanding of purity in our culture um, as if following a set of rules makes one pure, as opposed to a person who's genuinely uh, abiding in Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, producing you know evidence of that through fruitful living. Hmm. Yeah, and let's go back a little bit to just what you said too, in terms of I think the the Spirit has been sort of this junior varsity member of the Trinity for the for so many people, where don't really know where the Spirit fits, don't even really know if the Spirit is it or He. I think a lot of people don't even know for sure how to refer to the Holy Spirit. And it, it reminds me of, I remember back in my seminary days, our professor used to have some fun because we had, we had three different systematic theology classes. We had one, two, and three. And systematic one was all about life and God the Father. Systematic two was all about life and Jesus the Son. And then systematic three was life uh, and God the Spirit. And um, what he would point out is when you read a lot of theology textbooks, especially in the more reformed and Lutheran and sola scriptura kinds of traditions that you end up with a systematic theology textbook that has a pretty wide section on God, the father, and then has a gigantic section on Jesus, the son. And then it sort of has this little itty bitty appendix section on the Holy spirit. 
And so much of our understanding of the faith really is almost two members of the Trinity is what he kept pointing out because there's the skepticism around the spirit. And I'd be curious your reaction to this because part of what he would have suggested would have taken place is as healthy as sola scriptura or scripture alone was to help remedy some of the ills of the church with the Protestant Reformation, this idea of scripture alone. One of the things that maybe it threw out was a sense of our ongoing mysterious relationship with God that's hard to categorize, that's hard to verbalize, that's very real. But what he was saying at the time is that the first 1500 years of Christianity would have been centered around the communion table. And so you would have had a homily or a talk, uh, perhaps given in Latin, that the people didn't really even understand anyway. But uh, it was really centered around coming to the communion table together. And when the abuses of the Catholic Church back then were being dealt with, one of the expressions that really changed in the church was that they sort of shoved aside the communion table uh, and replaced it with the pulpit. And the pulpit at that point in Christian history became the center of the worship service where the preacher was expected to faithfully exposit or preach the word of God and stay anchored to the scriptures because scripture alone is what's going to be our guideline moving forward in faith, which, again, I completely sympathize with. I have such a high view of the authority of scripture and the importance of it. But the last point, and then this is where I'd love to get your reaction from, is that it, it almost became this idea that the pastor would tell the people what they had to do based on the principles or ideas of scripture. And then the people are expected to go apply all of those things uh, over the next couple days, weeks, months, or whatever. But sort of the downside of that was, is it took the mystery of our ongoing relationship with God and sort of God's agency in our life. And we became the locus of how do we live a fruitful life? Well, I've just got to try harder. I've just got to apply harder. I've just got to get into an accountability group that will help control my behavior. I've just got to do X, Y, Z. When all the time we'll say, hey, we can't do this Christian life alone without God. And yet sometimes we try to. We hear some truth from the Bible about what we're supposed to do. And then we go try to do it. And then we fail. So that's maybe what we would have talked about in class is when you take the Holy Spirit out of the equation and you substitute simply just biblical principles that we do on our own, we kind of end up maybe failing in the long, along the lines of what Anne Graham Lotz was saying. We end up in this perpetual moral failure. So thoughts on that sort of outlining from a sense of history I don't know how you reconstruct life with God, but I'd be curious for your sort of first thoughts on this. So I have some historical thoughts on the Holy Spirit, just in terms of, you know, it was it was the question of, uh, it was a question about the Holy Spirit that actually led to the first schism in Christendom, right? Yeah. So the question yeah. of whether or not the Holy Spirit was a co-equal, co-eternal member of the Trinity or something other than that, right? I mean, isn't that yeah. what led to the very first schism? That was definitely one of the main topics. Absolutely. And, and it, like whether the spirit proceeded from the love between God, the father and God, the son, and was functionally not really a Trinitarian member or whether the, the spirit really was a co-equal separate uh, from, but together with being within the Trinity was exactly the heart of that schism. So, um, you know, I, I think that even just talking about what, what we believe about the Holy spirit and whether or not we recognize that the Holy spirit is a, uh, you know, is present and co-eternal and, and active and working and has, you know, it sort of is the is the agency of God working out God's agenda in and among us. I mean, am I moment by moment? Here's a question. Am I moment by moment actively cooperating with the Holy Spirit who dwells within me, um, you know, submitting to the authority of God in my head and heart to bring me into greater conformity with God's will? I yeah. 
you know, so, you know, the father has a will for me. Um, and, and that's to bring me into greater conformity with who Christ is. And how is that going to happen? Well, certainly not my, by my own. I mean, I'm not, I am nowhere near good enough nor disciplined enough to make that happen. But the Holy Spirit is. And, and I think that's, so that's how do we begin to partner with the Spirit? Because what you just said, I think, it was related to what Lotz was saying in her talk. And she was being very clear that the Spirit is not a dove, that the Spirit is not just some flame of fire. Mm-hmm. The Spirit does not just lead us to an ecstatic experience. The, the Spirit is a divine, invisible person, mind to think, will to act, she said, emotions to feel, and adding that the Holy Spirit is present in all believers. But as part of our confusion, Carmen, and I'd love for your perspective on this too, Nat, um, is that we often equate the Holy Spirit with uh, some sort of ecstatic experience like speaking in tongues or maybe jumping around in worship. Like if the Spirit is active in your life, it's got to result in some sort of pretty interesting, unique, visible expressions associated with the Spirit. And Nat, I know a lot of young people that I am teaching right now are very compelled to go to churches where they say the Spirit is alive and active. But what we mean by the Spirit being alive and active tends to be speaking in tongues and some really visible worship expressions along those lines. I mean, is part of this just that we sort of equate too often the spirit with these sorts of experiences? I mean, Nat, what what are your thoughts? What do you see in this? I think that's a fair perspective. That also makes it tangible, right? It makes a nebulous spirit, which, you know, it's a little bit difficult to grasp how everything, it's just a little bit of a complicated topic. And if you sort of see a visible outcome that's attributed to the spirit, then that makes it really tangible and really sort of bridges uh, the two worlds. So I could see that being really highly attractive, right? Yeah. I mean, Carmen, same sort of thing in terms of, did, did you have sort of skepticism of the spirit? Have you just because of these things or has it not been in play for you? So I would say I'm a both and person on this topic. So I have a deep appreciation for the work of the Holy Spirit, not only in my own life, um, but throughout the course of all of human history. And so the presence of the Spirit in the Ruah, in the very breath of God at creation, um, and present throughout the scriptures of what we call the Old Testament, but you know what the Jews called the scriptures, um, where the Holy Spirit appears as, uh, you know, as Ruha Elohim, like the Spirit of God, or Ruha Yahweh, the Spirit of Yahweh, or um, uh, Ruha, uh, spirit of uh, Hakma, spirit of wisdom. And so, um, I think that once we get to the New Testament and we encounter the spirit as described as the spirit of Christ or the spirit of truth or the paraclete, um, the one who comes alongside, uh, or the actual language, the Holy Spirit, and we see these places and, and, and times when the entire Trinity appears to be present at an event. So I'm thinking at the, like at the baptism of Jesus or um, at the transfiguration where there, there's evidence that the, you know, obviously Jesus is present and obviously the father is present, but in those cases as well, there is, you know, a, an evidence of the presence of this third member of the Trinity, the Holy spirit. And so even though the word Trinity doesn't appear uh, in the Bible, the presence of these three is persistent in terms of the way people understand how God is um, is present and working and active. I don't think it has to be ecstatic, but I do yeah. think that the Holy Spirit is is an experiential um, reality, and and so it's less cerebral. Maybe our relationship with the Father is pretty cerebral, and our relationship with Jesus is um, this kind of familial. But the experience of the of the Holy Spirit is um, 
it's different. It is different than the way that we experience the father or the son. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I would, I love your both and sort of idea. I've seen too many things that are impossible for me to otherwise explain. And, and as one who is sort of trained in the arts of deconstructing any sort of evidence or phenomenon, I, I can't deconstruct what I've seen where a woman was clearly freed of a demonic possession, her body contorting in ways that I just, I can't imagine would be even possible to make your body contort in, in, in sort of the ways that I saw or other people that I know that have seen people raised from the dead and healed. It, it, there's too much evidence for me to not believe in, in sort of these more spectacular signs and wonders parts of the spirit. I think what I appreciate about what Anne Graham Lotz was suggesting in her article was that beyond that, there's an active daily, almost moment by moment role that the spirit plays in our lives. And going back to a second to what I said about the scriptures, she would not at all say it's either the, the spirit or the scriptures, that they both of course work in conjunction with one another. And when you read the scriptures in light of participating with the Holy Spirit, as you read, there's conviction that happens, there's understanding that happens, there's sort of a, a, a change of desire that even begins to happen as you fall, find yourself more in alignment with God as you read the scriptures. But then she said these words that I thought were pretty compelling, and it has to do with the Spirit's direction in her life. And she applied it to her chemotherapy, in which she found herself for, I think, the sixth or the seventh time. She said, that uh, I, I had to continue chemo. My next and last treatment would be my seventh time. And I was in obedience to God's leading. I committed to that seventh infusion. And she said it's because she was listening to the Spirit's whispers in her heart that she should continue with chemo and not just give it up. She said, would I have made the same decisions without what the Spirit had said? Would I have made the same perseverance, courage, comfort, and direction if I had not been reading my Bible and listening for the Spirit's voice? I don't think so. Yes, I would have survived, but like many others, and I thought this is the most compelling part she said, I would have just been guessing my way through life, afraid I would take a wrong turn and very probably doing so. Instead, the Spirit's whispers have enabled me to live with energetic confidence, making very few costly mistakes. So listen for the whisper of the spirit who speaks through the pages of his word that he himself has inspired, which are God breathed. And she used that phrase, what, maybe four times in three paragraphs about what it means to listen to the whispers of the spirit. And I think we could do a, a lot of attending to that idea versus the ecstatic experiences, which again, I am not a skeptic or a cynic of. I think people can fake those things and can be looking for attention and all of that. But I think they're also very real. But what does it mean to listen to the whispers of the spirit? How do you know the spirit's even whispering? To me, that is the most compelling thing of what she's saying there, Carmen. Well, and that is absolutely, I think, a part of what Anne Graham Lotz is saying, right? So you can't ever imagine that the spirit is telling you to do something that's contrary to what God has already said in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. And so there, there, is, there is an opportunity here for deception. And so if you don't know the word of God really, really well, then you're not going to be able to be certain when you hear the whisper as to whether or not it's really the spirit. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I mean, there's, yeah. lots, of, there's sure. lots of spirits out there. Um, and so I think we become very sensitive to the Holy Spirit and we, I mean, by walking in the spirit, right? So that's one of the... Uh, the ways that Paul sort of instructs us in the faith is to, you know, is to walk by the spirit, to walk in the spirit. Well, what does that look like? Well, it becomes, it, it eventually becomes your second nature. Like, like a little kid, initially you have to, 
you know, hold hold on to some grab bars and, you know, work your way through and like learn to walk in the way of the spirit because it's not it's not natural for us to walk in that way. But it, it does eventually become our second nature. And we don't have to ask ourselves every step we take. Is this is this right? Is this um, righteous? Is this the right thing to do? I mean, eventually you start striding in such a way that um, is consistent with the direction that God would have you go. And if you step out of that path, um, the spirit convicts pretty quickly. And that's not yeah. a whisper. That's more like, um, <laughs> you know, feeling the rod of the shepherd coming and smacking you <laughs> on the side to get you back in line. Like you feel it yeah. um, as a believer when you, uh, when you misstep, when you're, when you start wandering away from what is, you know, really walking in the spirit. So I don't know if that helps, but, yeah. um, but that would be my answer to the question. Yeah, and, and I and I find too that uh, in the times of my life where I've made the pros and cons list related to a decision, and I'm not saying you shouldn't make a pros and cons list, but I, I've certainly been in those places where maybe in whether it's taking a job or, or moving from a home or whatever it is, it doesn't even have to be a major thing like that. It can just be any sort of thing that you're making a decision around. How often it is that there maybe is 35 pros and four cons, right? So by my little T-chart on my piece of paper, all the pros should be suggesting that I should make the decision one way, but in my gut, in my heart, in my, I'm not sure the places where the spirit whispers, it, it can be, you know, yeah, it all looks good right now, but I don't want you walking in that direction. And I find that really interesting. The times that I've overrun that still small voice and kind of maybe try to explain it away. And then I say yes to it anyway. Oh my gosh, that's when the rod becomes, you know, it, it hits me pretty hard in those moments. And uh, it just, I think it speaks to the limitations of doing life by your own judgment and discernment, as opposed to listening to those whispers and trusting. Nat, I mean, Nat. you know. Yeah, looking yeah, for Nat I'm to curious. weigh in here. Well, I know we're, we're both looking at Nat right now. Nat, what do you got on this? Well, I mean, that's, it's just hard. <laughs> Going back to you, you asked Carmen if she had any skepticism, right? Yeah, I, I guess I probably walk in with a little more skepticism because it's really hard on an everyday level to experience all these whispers. Like you have to really intentionally work through and you know read, and it makes it's just difficult on a daily basis, at least when I'm this young and inexperienced with life and Christianity to, to know how to navigate this. Yeah. No, I, I think that's fair. I mean, I can tell you, I, I think I was probably in my thirties or so when I was, when I asked God, I said, you know, I really would like to hear your voice in a way that is increasingly clear to me in day-to-day -day life. So I, all the different whispers that you said, Nat, it sounds like you have in terms of what comes across your spirit in any given moment, right? Is like, how do you discern what God's voice is? And now I am not advocating for this. I'm just going to tell you what the journey was that was very surprising for me as I invited God into that place with me is I didn't associate with that at first, but not long after I prayed that prayer, I remember, <laughs> sounds so, I can't believe I'm saying this to the two of you. I, I found myself in Target, a uh, grocery store here locally, and I had on my list that I was supposed to pick up some blueberries. So I literally like reached down and grabbed the one blueberry tray and I felt like my hand was stopped or stayed. I was like, what? And it was like, not that blueberry tray, pick a different one. And I, so I just like, I picked a different one. I mean, this is, 
This is kind of like walking around the walls of Jericho. This is Gideon by the water, right? Except it's a blueberry tray. I don't think the one was poisonous versus not, but I just decided, okay, I feel really stupid right now, but I'm going to pick up this blueberry tray. And then I know I would go in and I would get ready for the day. And I was getting ready to pick out my, my black t-shirt, my undershirt, which I was going to kill it with. Right. And also be like, nope, wear the gray one. I'm like, what is happening? Am I going crazy? Do I, do I need medication at this point? What's happening? I would pull into parking spots and it'd be like, not this parking spot, go to the other one. And I, I wasn't hearing that language, but I could feel like, no, all right, I'm, I'm supposed to just go this direction. Now that went on for the better part of probably 18 months, I want to say. And I just felt like, you know what, I'm going to trust this out. This is new to my life. I don't for sure know what's going on, but I'll tell you why to make a long story short. I'll never forget that about 18 months later, I was in the pulpit on a Sunday morning. I had my full transcript ready. I was rolling through the whole thing. And all of a sudden, I heard this, nope, don't go this way, go that way. Go somewhere completely different with the talk in that moment. Because when you're preaching, you don't know what the people need. The Spirit knows what the people need, and you've got to go that direction. And that voice that I learned to be obedient to to on the stupid blueberries and T-shirts and parking lots suddenly was a very clear voice in the pulpit. And I went a different direction. And I'll say this, I've never looked back. That, that, that voice is deeply familiar to me now, 17 years later, and I've learned to trust it. But it started with something as stupid as a blueberry tray. So Carmen, I don't even know that I want you to respond to that given ducks and locusts, because I'm afraid of what you're going to say. But that was my journey into learning to hear God's voice in a way that I felt like was stable and consistent. I've got nothing in response to that. <laughs> nothing. But it's a tangible, practical way to do it. Now, I would love. I'm not denying you your experience. I am not. Yes. I'm not denying your experience. Yeah, that's, that's I just have fair. nothing. I have no response. Is that fair? I think that's super fair. Uh, Nat, is that you, you're going to go ask and go try to figure out like which button to press on the on the the board right now for the till? We'll see. I mean, mostly, I don't know. Maybe I just need to go to Target first. <laughs> I think that's fair. All right, Carmen, we've got just a minute left. What are you going to wrap us up with here related to this life in the spirit stuff? Um, all right. So let's see. Life in the spirit. Um, I would say that how about everybody just sort of consider this week how the spirit is moving and active in your life and how you are walking in the spirit and what evidence of the fruit of the spirit exists in your life. Uh, do you have more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control than you did this time last year? Maybe that would just be a good uh, sort of self-check, a little fruit inspection, so to speak. I love it. Well, that'll do it for this episode of The Till. Catch us next time. So for Carmen LaBerge and Nat Becker, I'm Peter Kapsner, and thanks for listening to The Till. Mm-hmm.